in this episode of 2036 the podcast so if you kind of think about privacy it's essentially the flip side of personalization we love the fact that we're sitting in the office and at 5 o'clock your phone tells you time to leave got to go to the gym because it knows every day that's what you do and essentially that information is stored and therefore it is able to provide you a personalized recommendation but that also means that google knows and has information on that particular fact and that may or may not be comfortable to some people but the important thing here from a regulatory perspective is that we the consumers have control over what we give out how much personalization we want to enjoy and therefore how much privacy we're willing to actually give out Hello and welcome to 2036 the podcast. My name is Munir Mcjani and I will be your host for this conversation. Today with us we have Ramanath Chalapa, who is an associate dean and academic director of the Masters of Science in Business Analytics program. He is the Gozueta Foundation term professor of Information Systems and Operations Management at the Gozueta Business School, Emory University. Prior to joining Emory University, Professor Chalapa served on the faculty of Marshall School of Business University of Southern California and was founding director of the Electronic Economic Research Lab, eBiz Lab at UCS. Chalapa teaches in the MBA, MS and PhD programs. He has received several teaching awards including the school-wide Adler Teaching Prize and the university-wide Provost Distinguished Teaching Award for excellence in graduate and professional education. He holds a bachelor's degree in mining engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology Varanasi and a PhD in management from the Macab School of Business University of Texas at Austin where his work provided the first scholarly definition of the term cloud computing. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, you have an expertise in electronic markets, pricing, digital goods, piracy, and economics of information security and privacy. How has this research into your privacy in particular influenced your views on how AI should be used? So, here is how I look at my research. I essentially study what we call the unintended consequences of technology. Mm. So, when technology came about, we didn't expect there would be so much more piracy. and neither did we expect we will get all these personalized information so if you kind of think about privacy it's essentially the flip side of personalization we love the fact that we're sitting in the office and at 5 o'clock your phone tells you time to leave got to go to the gym because it knows every day that's what you do and essentially that information is stored and therefore it is able to provide you a personalized recommendation but that also means that google knows and right. has information on that particular fact if you don't give out personal information there is no personalization and the next question i would ask you is how much do you pay for gmail the answer is zero right and obviously google is not running a charity organization yes. <laughs> which means that they're going to use your information for something that they're going to make money out of right but the important thing here from a regulatory perspective is that we the consumers have control over what we give out how much personalization we want to enjoy and therefore how much privacy we're willing to actually give up so there's this balance that we have to find between the personalization and the privacy absolutely i think there's a positive side to this as well and you've stated and i quote building a community around ai at emory is a great way to engage multiple perspectives and will have a significant impact on the university wide pedagogy how should we go about building that community while ensuring multiple perspectives are included So when we think about AI or machine learning or any of these algorithms and technologies they're all developed with a means to an end of applying them somewhere 
And one of the things that we are particularly learning about AI and machine learning is those models and those algorithms are only as good as the amount of context that they understand. One of my PhD students, Jonathan Gomez, is doing a fantastic piece of work where he's actually looking at how AI and moderation that you see on Twitter and on various social media, how that is actually further subjugating certain marginalized communities. So for example, some communities may use certain words in a friendly fashion. And then if you put them out you know, on Twitter, because that's right. how you speak to each other, that will be immediately classified as toxic. So does that mean that you are not supposed to speak the way that you normally speak with each other on Twitter? But fundamentally, it gets influenced and it goes and feeds into these training data, as we call it. And therefore, we build future models based on that. So when I say that multiple perspectives are important, the domain, the context, and how we are going to use these technologies are absolutely critical for both firm welfare, which is what we study in the right. business school, but also social welfare, how this is going to affect society. AI and especially technology is ever-changing, but probably one of the fastest growing fields of exponential growth, right? What do our students and individuals who are in this field need to thrive as data leaders for the centuries to come? So one example I can give you is about the kinds of programs we have started, particularly in the business school. A program that I run is what is called the Master of Science in Business Analytics. Right. And the reason these kinds of programs are important goes back to sort of your earlier question about, you know, how we need to know where these are applied. And these mm. are essentially the same questions that a lot of firms are facing. We have the fancy firms like Google and Facebook and all of these talking about fancy machine learning and AI and algorithm. But a lot of the regular firms are still putting together data. They're trying to connect the inventory data with the sales data, et cetera, et cetera, right? So our goal in these kinds of programs to create data leaders is essentially to say, you have to first understand the business problem you're trying to solve before you go about mm. simply running models. So that context is even more important to us in the business school because we know there are fantastic computer scientists who develop fantastic models, but how do you apply them in a firm, in a business, in society is fundamentally something that we want to train our students in as well. As we're growing into this, right, what do you think it is that we must invest in for our continuous use of this data and AI to build a better world? Well, I think the AI.Humanities initiative is simply a fantastic initiative because it really brings together multiple perspectives, multiple schools, all of whom think about AI technology in a very, very different fashion, right? So there are two components to it in my mind. One is we need to invest in the research. We need to invest in what more can we do, what more can we learn, and what more can we contribute. But Research is no good if you don't take it to the classroom. And that is really where the investment and the nature of the kind of programs that I was talking about are critical, not only for the student's education, but the student can go on then to educate the firms and the places they're going to be working in. And hopefully their society as well. So you talk about society and especially our students at Emory who want to take on things that are bigger than them, right? And previously we talked about how kind of AI can not only just be racist, but really start targeting individuals based on their culture. 
What is it that we can do to help prevent that? How do we make that better? I think we need to have folks who are concerned about these problems, regulators involved in the early design of these products. Because once these products are designed, they start making money, it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Right, right. And this is a larger question than AI to kind of think about, is everybody participating in this mm. technological growth and change? The answer is no. And so some conscious effort needs to happen towards you know, not only acquiring kind of the monetary benefits, but even the basic participation. If you don't have a good phone, if you don't have internet connection, you're done. And we saw that during the pandemic when right. schools had to go the extra mile to ensure the marginalized kids to be able to access education, right? I mean, education, I think of it as a fundamental right. Yeah. And if it is a fundamental right, the manner in which it is delivered should be accessible. Right. So we talked about how this has changed education a good bit, right? What is a way that you see this technology has changed business that we may not know of unless we were sitting in your seat? Well, I think, you know, we see the obvious ones, right? Because these are the consumer gadgets that we actually use. What we have not seen essentially are the things that happen in the back things that happen in a supply chain, things that happen in inventory management. We always say in the business school, the goal of a firm is profit maximization and profit is revenue minus cost. The revenue part we understand well because as consumers, we know we are buying this stuff, you're paying money, but technology has also played a significant role in the reduction of the cost of operation of the firm. That makes a lot of sense. So I did some research on you in the back end when we were preparing for this. And over and over again, I saw a theme when you were talking that you're very interested in the role of social media as well. What is it about that that interests you and how is that changing our landscape? It suddenly allowed us to say things we would have never said, except in close quarters. Today, we have people posting their breakfast that they had in Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> or whatever on Facebook, Instagram. So it has kind of removed a barrier. And so what is interesting about removal of that barrier from a firm perspective is that not only do firms have data on what you purchase, but what we're seeing with social media is that we are giving out behavioral information, intent. Oh, I'm thinking about buying this. And then we tell everybody. So that change in our behavior influenced by a new technology and therefore the consequence of that leading to a whole different set of products, etc. It's just fascinating. Do you see a world where we get paid for our data? Where the more I'm on Instagram, the more Instagram pays me because they're using my data? Yes, there are tremendous amount of monetization techniques that are happening. But I think the question that you're asking touches upon a more fundamental point, which is that you own your data. If somebody else is using it, should you not be compensated? The current compensation is in the form of personalization. But there are lots of other people who are also not compensating you and using your data, which we may not be even aware of. And so, in fact, one of the earliest papers I wrote on privacy is actually, we should treat your private data as though it's a land right. You own that property, you can lease it for over right, a period of right. time. And the role of the government has to be, let's ensure that contract is maintained. Yeah. And I think the government is often catching up to this technology, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think they are way, way, way behind. Yeah. yeah. 
As someone who's seen the back end in and out of this left and right, are there any protective measures that you take or that you recommend a listener takes with their technology? Have a pretty decent password. Okay. If possible, use two-factor authentication, which is basically anytime you log on anywhere, there will be a text message that will be sent to your phone, right. which will have a number. Without that, nothing moves forward. And I guess there will come a time eventually we may have biometric implants or something that is easily readable by whatever device you're kind right. of using. I mean, and we have that, right, with fingerprints and face we scanning do. as well. We do. So you are also very much in the form working on music digitization. What does that look like and what does that mean? That's an interesting field and it is actually a bellwether in terms of what might happen to domains and industries that do not accept the fact that technology is going to change them. Mm. The music industry for a long time relied on what we call a bundling strategy, right? right? So you had to buy a CD. Right. And in a CD, there are probably about 10 to 11 songs. I don't know who died and made 1999 the price of the CD. <laughs> they came up with a number. And of those 10 to 11 songs, we know that pretty much one right. is a good is one. The one. But because they were what we call monopolists, mm. essentially they decided this is how we're going to sell. We're going to force you to buy. When Apple came about, the music industry said, oh, here is somebody who's going to legitimately sell songs. Right. And they said, well, these guys don't know anything about music. We are the music people. They're just going to sell song, make some iPod or whatever. However, what Apple came and did was it said, you know what? I'm going to make hundreds of percent margin on selling the iPod or really I'm not going to make money from the music. So I'm going to sell everything at 99 cents. So if you think about what are the products that sell at the same price, no matter what they are, that's what we call a commodity. So they basically made a commodity out of a very differentiated product, leading the industry to fundamentally hand over the power structure to somebody like Apple, who's further downstream in the supply chain. I didn't think I was going to talk about art in our conversation with AI, but I love that we are. Do you see things like Apple hurting or helping the customers? Well, I think all of technology in some way or the other is benefiting the average customer, average end user. I mean, think about even buying a fan or an air conditioner or something on Amazon. You're not only getting, you know, that particular equipment, but you're also getting all the reviews around it mm. and like, you know, what works in this or maybe you shouldn't buy that. If you live here, that doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not paying more for that. Right. So, in fact, you know, some of the researchers in this field have said that technology has actually improved consumer welfare because we're still paying kind of the same price. However, we now have all these additional features along with the product. Right. Well, I definitely appreciate you joining us today and all the work that you're doing to make AI not only more personable, but having this debate between privacy and personalization. For those of you listening, I hope you will change your passwords from ABC123 to something more complicated and definitely add a two-step verification. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much, Munir. Enjoy the chat. Absolutely. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast. If the work that we have done generationally puts us in a place where students are more expressive about what they need to be successful, we have a responsibility to listen, especially because we may be using mental models that does not include the diversity of students that we have on our campus now, you know? 
We have more students who are learning differently. We have racial differences, regional differences. So when you have a diverse student body and we have worked to destigmatize giving them information about what they need to be successful at a place like Emory, then we have a responsibility to listen to what they're telling us. Join host Munir Megjani and Dean of Campus Life Inku Galai as they imagine a more inclusive future. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.